I'm absolutely convinced that all men, including you and I, have hidden potential that's not been tapped into. The team and I have designed a quiz for you to work out what that could be, and there's a link to it in the show notes. I'll tell you more at the end, but for now, enjoy the episode. The pain is literally, it's like somebody driving a nail into your lower back. You get to the point where you start getting lightheaded, stars start appearing, you think, I'm going to pass out in a minute. Welcome to Stories of Men, Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. This episode is about the barriers that we put up around us. We think they're protecting us from difficult situations, but actually they're blocking us off from what really matters. There was a period in Mark's life where every morning he would wake up with a decision to make. Would he spend the day being crippled by pain or impaired by opioids? Mark, who's a traffic officer, has inflammatory arthritis, which causes extreme joint pain. Everywhere from his back to his wrists, he used to manage the pain by doing exercise, but when he couldn't work out, he began to rely on a strong prescription painkiller called Tramadol. It dulled the pain, but also his motivation to do anything. One cold December morning, a few days before Christmas, Mark took his pills as usual and waited for the medication to kick in. His two greyhounds were ready for their morning walk. I remember that morning waking up. The first thing I'd do was just turn over to the bedside table, taking the two tramadol tablets and then go downstairs, fraught with pain and sort of get down the stairs gingerly sitting down in the living room and then wait for the tramadol to kick in. And then when it does start to numb, all the pain that I have in my joints, whether it's my hands, wrists, my back, it just goes numb and it disappears. You think it improves your mood because all of a sudden you're not in pain. I remember my wife, Charlotte, going to work. I couldn't even be bothered to say goodbye properly. I was just sat in a chair looking at the TV, thinking, oh, thank God that's kicked in now. And it was one of those lovely frosty winter's mornings where the the sun's low in the sky, but the the quality of the light's fantastic. I just remember thinking, it's really nice, but they're not quite connecting with it. And then I remember walking across the nature reserve and thinking, this is all starting to go wrong again. I should at this point be really, really happy. It's before Christmas. All right, I've got this condition. It's going to end my career, but I'm being looked after. You know, I'm a fortunate person. I just felt absolutely devastated. I thought something's wrong here because I'm not happy. I remember just standing there and there's a big field where you look across to a lake and the sun reflects off the lake and I'm just thinking, I've done it again. I've got this history of finding ways to throw up barriers to everything in my life that I should be able to appreciate and concentrate on. And I thought now I've done it with this medication that I'm taking every day. Rather than taking the medication To ease the pain where I needed to ease the pain, I was just taking the medication just to numb me to life. Well, when I bring the dogs back, I go, we got a side entrance. But it's very long and thin. You know, it's in between the houses. It's quite dark, if you like, the alleyway. Even though it was a beautiful winter's morning, that alleyway is on the opposite side to the sun and it's in the shade and everything. Then when you look down the alleyway, it's light. And I remember thinking, this is almost like a, a metaphor for my life at the moment. I'm trapped in this light alleyway and I've got to get out of it. 
So you'd had this big realisation. What happened next? With the realisation, I got into the house and the first thing I did was take another second lot of tramadol. Even though probably after my dog walk, I didn't need it for the pain, but I just got into the habit because then I knew that, you know, take another lot of tramadol. So it's like to the cupboard, get out the blister pack, two more tramadol. And then I wouldn't even have to think about being in pain, you know, then. And then it, it was like, wait another four hours. That's it. Then have another dose of tramadol. And that was it. What I find fascinating, Mark, is how you've had this massive realisation, this huge epiphany, and then immediately afterwards you take Tremadol again. What was going through your mind when you thought about that? Because usually when people tell you about these big aha moments, then they go, okay, I'm going to knuckle down and I'm going to do whatever I can to overcome this, but you actually just went back into your typical habit. The first thing with any issue like this is to realise you've got an issue. And I knew that it's one of those things that's going to take time. Even though I'd had this realisation that, that I'd, I'd basically got to a point where if I didn't do anything about it, everything was going to go horribly wrong. Again, it, it's hard to drag yourself away from it. You almost kid yourself that, you know, sort of, oh, oh, I can do this, but I'll start tomorrow. To the point where my efforts really to, to address the issue didn't come probably until the new year. Because I was drinking as well over Christmas, as people do, which doesn't mix very well with prescription painkillers at all, um, it was causing all sorts of issues. Uh, I became quite argumentative uh, as, as I started to realise that I, I put myself in a corner that, you know, that I, I couldn't get out of. And it wasn't until the new year with the support. I mean, I, I'm very lucky, you know, I've got a... a brilliant family but sort of they always say don't they behind every good man is an even better woman and my wife really has been that what she's had to put up through uh through my career and everything else with me um is tremendous but literally with her support and talking it through we got to the stage where it said you know this is this is how we're going to do it and probably not until probably about the third of january so a good two weeks probably, you know, time after my realisation, did I actually think, right, I've got a whole box of tramadol now left, which was 100 tablets, because I'd even got a new prescription in between New Year, between Christmas and New Year. So I'd, I'd gone to the effort of phoning the doctors and saying, I need some more tramadol. They just give them you, so there's no questions asked. With my wife, Charlotte said, right, this is going to be the last box now. This is where it starts. Then sort of, you know, started to cut down half the dose. In my career, I've watched, I've watched heroin addicts in cells, you know, you know, withdrawing, and bits and pieces. And I knew that at some point I was going to start withdrawing. With the way it worked, I, I basically took the box over just over three weeks, and then for my last week, I was going to take just one dose of tramadol a day. Uh, which, considering I've been on four doses a day, just a month you know, earlier, I knew I was going to start to suffer. You know, I said to my wife, I said, I, I, I could be problematic this week, you know, sort of um, just so you know. But although I got the typical physical um, symptoms of withdrawal, whereby it was like having flu and I had a 24 hours of nausea and sweats, the psychological aspect of it, I, I think, again, because I was realising that if I didn't do it, everything was going to go horribly wrong seemed quite a quick week, if you like. When I took my last lot of Tramadol, I had one dose left and I, I was taking it first thing in the morning like I always used to. And I was thinking, right, this is the last one now. 
And so every time I started to get into pain, I would just, you know, I've got a static bike, you know, a running machine, which I can walk on. I'm not like, you know, I can't run on it because of my condition, but literally I can walk on it. And so if I started to get into pain, I could just pop onto the running machine or, or the static bike. And then that would, you know, help relieve the pain. And then everything else started to come together then. You know, all the barriers started to drop away that, that I put up with the, with the the painkiller addiction, if you like. And I started to become human again. So all of a sudden, I was able to take an interest in my wife's new job, you know, suddenly taking an interest in, in my kids again. Even they'd probably tell you, it's like living with a different person, like somebody flicked a switch. It wasn't the first time it's happened to me because I've done it with work before. <laughs> it's like, you know, you, we, we, I throw, you throw up all these barriers in your life you, for what you think are the right the right reasons and I've done it with work previously having you know what I'd call you know a, a very satisfying and, and what people would say is a you know a worthwhile career but looking back it, it, it was highly toxic to people around me because it just desensitized me and I got all my priorities wrong and you know the old saying about you, they can replace you at work but you'll never replace at home you know didn't ring true at all with me and it should do with everybody but this time instead of being my job and being driven to help people, which is basically all I was doing in the police, but neglecting those around me um, and, you know, not giving people the time and attention those around me. And I've done it for years. Now it was medication that was doing it. But I remember just feeling so angry with myself that I'd, I'd let it happen again, but with something else. I knew that, you know, I've got the sort of kind of personality from my therapy previously, where rather than talking to people, about what's wrong with me, whether it be because I'm in pain or anything like that, I will throw up barriers. I would just literally close myself off. It was the realisation, having the motivation to do it. I was at the point where I should have been very, very happy. All right, my career is going to come to an end because of a medical condition, which at first I was very devastated about. But it was like a new chapter. I'm the sort of person that thinks, you know, everything happens for a reason. If you can't control something, say you'll control it happens. It happens for a reason. That's the way I always look at things. And I was thinking, right, you know, I, I should be happy. I'm going to start a new chapter in my life now. It's a new beginning, you know, all right. Uh, I can. I won't have my old career, but then I was thinking I could go and do something else. It won't be full time. It can be for a charity, you know, volunteering or something like that. They don't rely on me being there every day. And that morning, the the original morning, the, the realization of why why did you feel so devastated about everything? And what have you done? You know, sort of all the things that you should be valuing and experiencing, you're not because you've threw up another barrier. What I'm curious about is when you said that you were a completely different person and it was noticeable to your two boys and your wife once you'd come off the medication. So if I was to ask them who Mark was whilst he was on the medication on Tremadol and who was Mark afterwards, what would they say? What would be the differences? When you're on the, the medication, you're, you're basically devoid of emotion and the the ability to care about what anybody else cares about. And like I said, I, it, I've been there before. With If you're a police officer, you become very desensitised to, to the emotion. What are important to other people is not important to you because, you know, you'll, you'll do things every day at work and you'll see things and you'll come home and people will say, you know, 
this is oh, this happened today and it was really traumatic. And you think it's nothing, <laughs> you know, absolutely nothing to what I've seen today. Or you know, you come home, your wife goes, oh, the, the house is really messy. You go, no, it's not. You want to see the houses that I go into? Not really. Honestly, what's important to them suddenly it's not important to you, and you've got no empathy at all. That's it. You you just think, don't be, you, know, you, you just dismiss it. You know, and, and you stop caring. And it was exactly the same process with the medication. Rather than being that psychological wall that's put up, it, it was a, a, you know, this impairment, this opioid painkiller-based impairment that just numbed everything. And so all of a sudden, when you come off it, you start caring. And everything that you should care about, you start caring again. Um, the Probably the other side of that is you just, well, I do. I feel massively guilty because you've come very close to ruining everything again. That overwhelming sense of guilt. And then you just you feel like you've got to make up for it, if you like. But then it's quite invigorating because all of a sudden you've come from a period in your life where you've got no emotion, no feelings, and then you're just overwhelmed by the emotion and feeling again when you're suddenly able to, you know, to feel again and care about the, the stuff that you should be caring about. Things like my wife's career is so important to me now that she's gone through a period of watching me have a career and basically having to be a widow to that career, which was, again, it was highly toxic probably at the time. You know, like I said, when I was in the midst of my career and thinking I was doing all the right things, I wasn't a very nice person. You know, I'd quite often drift away and, you know, get the thousand yard stare while you're thinking, you know, you know, when people try to engage you in conversation. But now I'm in a position where I will gladly sit there and listen to my wife talk about work for hours on end. And I absolutely love it, which before, it was something you, you know you wouldn't have had my attention for like two minutes whether it was because I, my tramadol addiction kicking in or whether it was my you know addiction to my career before but now you start to value all the things that you should value and once those barriers have been moved you know removed and you, you hear people talk about it whether it's alcohol whether it's you know uh, other addictions drugs um, gambling everything like that it, you just start throwing barriers to everything that's important in your life. And I've gone through with the Tramadol, probably well, just probably just over 12 months of, of living that existence, of being um, emotionally to, numb to everything that's going on around me, which, like I said, afterwards, I was absolutely devastated about it because this is the second time I've done this, you know, to, to not only me, but the people I care about. First time it was in my career, this time it was with medication. And I couldn't believe that I'd done it. And when I'd had counselling previously, I'd worked really hard to change myself and all the things that had come. But part of the, the silver cloud, if you, if you like, is that now that my career's coming to an end, uh, because medically I, I, I can't do the role anymore and there's nothing that I can do for the police anymore, that's gone. So now I've got nothing, no barriers at all. I haven't got the career to get in the way of all the things that I should care about. And all the you know all the feelings that I should have, and now I've got over the tramadol addiction. So literally, there are no barriers now. And even I realise, you know, sort of you sit there and self reflect, and you think, how can you be so different? You know, how how can you be this the same person, but care about so many different things now that previously you never used to care about? 
it's the little things. When you're lying there on your deathbed, what will you remember? Will you remember your career? No. Will you remember the flashy car you had? No. It will be those small interactions with the people that you love around you. And unless you remove those barriers, no matter what it is, whether you know it's the, my tramadol addiction, whether it's like my addiction to work previously or, or addictions people have, you will never have those experiences and you won't care about the things that you should care about. Uh, and they're the things that you'll regret. You know, it's sort of, and, and now I realise that. It's, it's a battle. Unfortunately, I've got one of those personal personalities where because I suffer from anxiety and depression I will very easily throw close myself off given the opportunity but I'm very lucky that you know I've got a wife Charlotte who if I start to do things or she will very quickly tell me like you know Mark you're doing it again what what you're being like that for you know and um, I had an instance the other day um Literally, uh, we were going out and my youngest was going to borrow a pair of my trainers and I kind of walked in and I was like I was going to wear those trainers. That was it. And then she, it's not a big thing. It's not a big thing at all. You know, why being like this? And you just think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm off again now. This is my, you know, uncontrollable in a, you know, silverback gorilla, as my counsellor used to call it. That's it. It doesn't matter. Think about, you know, you know, you know, get things in perspective. It seems like you've gone back to being a human being again, because all the years that you've done in the police as your career, You've had to sort of be devoid of human emotions and feelings. And as you're winding down that career, you're actually going back to being a human being. And I can understand why police have to do that because they're seeing so many difficult situations. They're going through lots of difficult experiences with, with criminals and, and things that the normal person doesn't see. So how does that feel nowadays to be to actually have proper human emotions and to have empathy for your family, your friends, and, and other people around you. We'll get back to the episode in a second. Before that, I just want to say, if you think this episode would be useful to a friend, send it along. You never know, it might just be the exact thing they're looking for today. And now back to the show. It's fantastic. I mean, I've spent the vast majority of my career as a traffic officer. So, you know, I've dealt with a lot of death and bits and pieces and never really handled it very well. Like I said, until about seven years ago when I had counselling um, and learned how to talk about things and express my emotions properly, if you like. But I'd come back from work and, you know, I could have put a four-year-old in a body bag after a road death that day. My wife would say, have you had a busy day? And I'd go, no. Nah. No, nothing to talk about. And I just bottled everything up. I'd be one of those people who, who just bottled everything up. I always said my, my head's like a bag of spanners clanking about. And then, you know, if I ever get time to think about it, uh, there's going to be serious problems. And not realising that thinking about it is what you've got to do and talking about it is what you've got to do to prevent the problems. When you put on a uniform, you, you put on a fake persona. The problem is, is that you very start quickly start taking that fake persona home with you and it becomes your persona and so that police officer who's you know devoid of emotion very professional is absolutely toxic in the home environment and to relationships it, it, it is the worst thing you can do and you live a life of denial and you know my wife would say you know sort of you do realize that you you can sit there and you you be really quite funny and offish with people. And I'm like, no, there's nothing wrong with me. No, 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 you're wrong. No, no, no. It's them, you know. So, but it's not. Unless you open yourself up to talking about these things and open yourself up to emotion and don't close things off, it, it does cause you huge issues. That was the thing with the, the tramadol addiction. 
that annoyed me so much is that I created almost a, a similar issue to what I'd gone through in my career. And I got to the point where I realised I was doing it in my career, had a lot of counselling, um, you know, learnt about sort of my mental health and how to look after it and all the coping mechanisms. Um, and although it was like baby steps, I was getting better and better and better at being a human being again while I was in the job, looking almost towards the end of my career, if, if you like. And then all of a sudden, with one diagnosis, it accelerated that process. Uh, the only thing that happened in between is the tramadol addiction, which took me right back to the point where I'd thrown up a load of barriers and become a person who, you know, was devoid of emotion. And so now it's a case of you've got to rebuild those relationships around you um, with the people that you care about and try to get back to some kind of normality. But it's hard for them because they're exposed to this person for years and then they've been exposed to this person for the last 12 months who they've then thrown up their own barriers to cope. So, you know, you're in a position where, you, you know, I could turn around and say, like, sort of, yeah, well, you know, look at me, I'm better again now, you know, sort of look at me, I can care and I can share and all these. And they'll, they can sit there and go, that's all very well, but we've had to cope with you for the last 12 months. You've got to be patient with us now. And that, that's that's one of the other hard things about it all, is that sort of you, you then start, like I said, I feel massively guilty about the effect that I've had on other people. But like I said, I'm lucky. I've got a fantastic wife um, and my kids are fantastic. I'm lucky that, that, you know, they've just hung in there for me, really. You know, <laughs> and I had, had faith that I was going to come out the other end. The, the police and the public services is not really a world that I know that much about. The closest thing I got to when I was, I was a kid, I always remember my mum saying, oh, Alex, you should be a police interrogator when you're older because you ask so many bloody questions. I just ended up going down a different route of actually doing a podcast but how, how does a police man or woman they work all day with all of these difficult situations and then they go home how do they switch off from i suppose this is the million dollar question how do they switch off from all of the things that they've had to experience that day and be a normal human being when they get home because i'm guessing you know, I almost have to be two different people now you do um but it's one of those unfortunate things uh, with a lot of the emergency services that a lot of people can't switch off and you don't. And like I said, you throw up barriers. So, you know, there's been times where drinking alcohol is part of the job. You know, it's a bit of a running joke, really, that people, you know. Um, but you, everybody's got coping mechanisms. And unfortunately, alcohol probably played a large part at certain points in my life in me coping, you know, sort of. And, and then a lot of other police officers as well. And then the other thing is is, is that you, you just put up mental partitions in in your mind and, and just cl cl put things in boxes. Um, and you think, right, yeah, that, that's in a box back there now. It, it's all right. It's not going to do anything. But then those boxes, are, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll come back to haunt you, and they do. Um, and you don't realise it. But then when you should be concentrating on something at home uh, that's important to everybody else or, you know, when you're out with friends or family and, they, you know, your box appears from the back of your mind and dominates. And so you you don't cope then. And like I said, that's when you end up with a thousand yard stare and everybody thinks, what's wrong with him? You know, that, you know why is he being so offish? And you're not being offish at all. Um, it's just part of your coping mechanism, but it's the wrong coping mechanism. It wasn't explained to me until I, 
PI counselling and, oh, and, you know, learn how to process the thoughts and, and talk about them and then sort of, you know, have different coping mechanisms, one of which for me was always exercise, you know. But it's one of those things that unless you get a handle on it very early, it, it dominates your life. Um, and that's exactly what it, it did for me. Like I said, I've just been lucky with the people I've got around me and the support, you know. I've had a very a very lucky career where I've influenced a lot of things and probably more so than most police officers, you know, that, you know, been in some situations. I mean, you know, been rewarded for things I've done. But looking back, if you asked me, was it all worth it? I'd, I'd say, given your time again, if you had that time machine, I'd never join the police, I don't think. I think I'd just, <laughs> you know, the, the impact that devastating on you personally, your mental health, the irony is I always looked very well after my physical health, knowing the impact that the job has on your physical health, like shifts and eating the wrong food and stuff, apart from excessive drinking. You know, I've always looked after but my mental health. I just totally threw to the dogs. And as a result, it really impacted on my, my life. When you look at what's going on with prescription drugs, it really seems like a ticking time bomb in the UK, not just the UK, but America, many other countries. And millions of people are dependent on this. And it doesn't help for the fact that what you said before, the doctors don't even don't even blink. They just give you the extra pills that you need. Where are we going as a society with this? Is it going to get worse? Is it going to get better? What can we do to actually resolve this? Because it seems like for you, it was something that helped you short term just to numb the pain, but it was a temporary solution. It wasn't a long-term solution. So what do we do? It's one of those issues whereby if you're not careful, it will take people out of society completely it, once the, they go down that route. And it, it's something that very, very nearly happened to me. You can manage a condition like mine very well with exercise and just a bit of ibuprofen and gel. And, you know, pain can, you know, a few paracetamol if it gets to that. But with a change of lifestyle, it, you can cope well. People just aren't insensitised to change their lifestyle. That's the thing, you know, the whole thing about if you can just stay mobile, motivated, do a bit of moderate exercise, lose a bit of weight, it's going to improve your condition, the amount of pain that you're um, suffering considerably, but they're not incentivized to do that. And it's all very well, again, me saying, I, I can do this, you know, I've got access to all the bits and pieces I can go exercising. A lot of people can't, you know, they're not given the opportunity to do that. So we've probably got to look, rather than filling people full of pills, uh, and they are so easily accessible, there's no two ways about it. And it's an easy route for most people, but the, you don't think about the, like I said, the impact it has on those around you at the time you feel, oh, this is fine, this is, I've got no pain, I'm all right, thank you very much, but you're, you're causing hell for all the people around you. Unless we give people a opportunity to have an alternative and push that alternative, then you, we're going to end up suffering the consequences. The consequences are just the mental health issues. You know, I, I dare say that if, if I hadn't realised that I was becoming very self-destructive again for the second time in my life, but for different reasons, I dare say my mental health would have just spiralled. You know, just I would have been in a downward spiral. Um, you know, everything about now that I've got a positive light of my career ending, you know, it's removing the toxicity of the job away from my life. I've got to start a new chapter. It's going to be better for me. It's going to be better for my wife. It's going to be better for my family and everybody around me. If, if 
I hadn't had that epiphany, I'd have been still taking lots of tramadol and probably, you know, like I said, in a downward spiral to the point where everything would have been destroyed, everything you would have ended up where it should not. People require medication that they can end up becoming dependent on. Pain relief is important in regards to healing and opioids are essential for some. But are the pharmaceutical industry taking advantage of people in this regard? I've lost count of the amount of people I've spoken to in England who've gone to their doctors and briefly, very briefly explained their issues and immediately they prescribed opioids. Why don't we discuss these things first and find the root cause of the issue before we hastily prescribe opioids? For some people, painkillers are an absolute necessity for them to get through the day and I totally get that, but it isn't for everyone. I remember a friend taking opioids and they'd knock her out for 16 hours every night, 16 hours of sleep every single evening. She would feel lethargic, unproductive and not want to do anything. She didn't have the energy to spend quality time with her young son. She was in an unhappy marriage and realised that that was the root cause of her issues. As soon as she split up with her ex-husband, she was back to her old self. Even so, she had to diligently wean herself off these drugs because of how addictive they were. Fortunately, she got there in the end, but it took a lot of discipline on her part. In my opinion, Big Pharma has a vested interest to sell people as many drugs as possible, whether they need them or not. A lot of people look at the opioid crisis as a US problem, but actually it's a really big issue in the UK too. In 2017-2018, one in four adults in England were prescribed benzodiazepines, sleeping pills, gabapentinoids, opioids for chronic non-cancer pain or antidepressants. Drug addiction to cocaine, heroin, ecstasy is often talked about, but how much debate is on painkiller addiction? From researching about it, nowhere near enough from what I can see. Before you go, let me tell you about our man test. The team and I created it with the belief that every man has hidden, untapped potential and I want to help you discover what it could be. Let's face it, we've all got dreams and aspirations, but the stresses of life can get in the way. I know I've been there myself. As men, each one of us has skills and knowledge that sets us apart from the rest. It's about discovering what they are and making the most of them. The man test is simple, it takes less than three minutes and will help you discover your true strengths and talents by working out what kind of modern man you really are. Find the link in the show notes and take the man test today. You never know, you might just learn something new about yourself that you didn't know before.